So what are we talking about today? Well, thank you so much, Jeremy, for coming to the podcast again. I haven't talked to you for like two months and I felt like my podcast was missing something. You know, everybody misses Jeremy. Everybody asks me, where's Jeremy? Where's the book club? Well, today we're going to talk about a new book that just came out. Did you read it? No, I haven't read it yet, but I'm sure you have read it already. So I read it. It's actually a pretty interesting book. We've probably talked about a lot of it before, but basically it's a book by one of the guys from The Real Deal, which is, as everybody knows, the big real estate industry newspaper. Yep. And it's about the men, and they're all men, not surprisingly. Wait, um, hold on. Before we continue this conversation about this book, the name of this book is called The New Kings of New York. And I know this book is about men, and I have to emphasize in my podcast that ULI Nevada is doing an event next year in Women's History Month, not about the kings in real estate development. We are going to talk about the queens in real estate development, the queens who transformed the skyline of Las Vegas. Okay. Well, so, let's, let's, before we move on, let's just talk about why they're mostly men. Okay, and there are probably four, well, there are four reasons for that, I think. Okay. And they have nothing to do with gender or anything. Number one is to have access to that kind of capital. You probably have to have been doing this for a very long time. So these guys, if the book starts in the early 2000s to now, they're probably in their 60s to 80s now. One of them is Steve Ross and your face went completely dark. Number two is they have access to massive amounts of capital. Number three, their, their tolerance for risk is exceptionally hot. In fact, two of the guys in the book actually went bankrupt. And you know, we'll talk about that and how these guys went bust. Men tend to be more gamblers. And that's kind of how we ended up where we are. Interestingly, one of the guys that they don't talk about is Bruce Ratner. And Bruce Ratner gambled big on Atlantic Yards. And he didn't lose his shirt, but he didn't make any money. He got out of it a lot. A lot of these guys don't get out of these things alive. And this book really, you know, it's a bunch of great stories. I don't have the book in front of me, but two, three of the men who it talks about quite a bit are Steve Ross and the Time Warner Center and Hudson Yards, Kent Swig and Harry Macklow. So I guess we could start by talking about Harry Macklow. And who else does it talk about in there if you have it in front of you? Because I don't have it in front of me. Uh, I haven't read the book yet. And you know what? Honestly, I would like to see a book about women in real estate development. There are way too many books about men in real estate development. But uh, I Dan Dockroff. Seen... Okay, we'll talk about Dan Dockroff and Gary Barnett. Okay, so what we're going to do. Wait, Jeremy, talk... this is a very serious topic that I just brought up. It is. Uh, the thing is, is that the people, people want generally to read about buildings that they know and all... I think by the time by the time you are 50, it'll be a different world. Okay. But right now, I think most of the people who are doing these deals are generally men because they have access to massive amounts of capital. They've been doing this for decades. You know, the women in the industry, there are a couple big ones. There's a woman who's running a firm called M something or other. She was a big shot in the Bloomberg administration. No, the de Blasio administration. I think women are going to be in the top echelon, but I do think when they get there, it's going to be a lot 
different and maybe even a less a bit less interesting. One of the wait, why is it we, why is it less interesting? And I don't you think say, I was about to say why it was less interesting. Okay. People like to to read about people like lurid stuff. Okay, people don't want to read about people who just do their job, do it well, and go home. People like to read about big personalities who go bankrupt. I do think that men are more likely to be the big personalities who go bankrupt because they take bigger risks. You know, one of the people in the book is Harry Macklow, who puts a pic, a forty-story picture of himself with his new wife on the side of a building to taunt his ex-wife. I think that's something an egomaniacal man would do. I don't think an egomaniacal woman would do that. It's just, it just seems like it's something that it takes a particular lack of common sense to do. And women tend to have a lot more common sense. So I, when I say less interesting, I mean like less tabloid-esque. Women tend not to do that kind of stupid things, which is a good thing. It's a good thing if you're an investor. It's probably a bad thing if you're looking to write a tell-all book that's going to sell a lot of copies. Because, you know, the women's story is more likely to be somebody who's very organized, does her job and goes home at the end of the day. Uh, Harry Mackle did his job, went bankrupt three times, broke the went, went bankrupt once, lost a fortune and went home. I just think women are more likely to be a lot more sensible and less and, and, and more savvy when it comes to risk management. Does that make any sense? So all of the people that went bankrupt in this book. And you and I know that they came back up. Yes. And and don't you realize that this is an issue in our society that when men fail, they always fail forward. I think it's an issue because why would you give money? And I think the issue is why do banks keep giving the enabling these people? That's a huge problem, and that—that's you're absolutely right. That's a giant problem. But I do think it's a problem when somebody blows up and doesn't do risk management and then gets a fortune. To and go why is that? Else. Because banks see that real estate development is a high risk, high reward endeavor. There is a failure rate. I think the failure rate is reasonably high. And I'm not saying every real estate developer fails, but you know there's a certain percentage of property developers who are going to go broke. We know that it's hard to get access to giant pools of capital, and that that is one point we need to address and change in yeah, I th- you I, I th- and my generation. Why can only men get access to those giant pools of capital? Are, because the men who are at the peak of this profession have been doing this since the 70s, 60s, or 80s. At, you know, think of the big ones in New York. What do these guys have in common? They've been around forever. Mm-hmm. Banks are risk averse, and they say, "Well, I made money, Tishman. I made money with you for so many years. Well, I lost a bit of money this time. You know, it's still seen as less of a risk than to take a, a flyer on somebody new, because expertise is so rare in these fields. Is it a problem? Yeah, I, I, I don't think you'll find anybody." Will say that the fact that this guy lost a bank a billion dollars and then got to go back into business with another bank, you know, is is uh, is a problem. You know, one of the guys in the book. So let's start talking about the people in the book. We Just can pause the we can talk about the society issue in another episode. I think I found out what I really want to do in my commercial real estate career path. In the future, not right so now. So you're talking. You're talking about the twenty to thirty year goal, as opposed Probably, to the uh, yeah. As a, if I'm going to do something 
whether it's development or private equity, I think I want to invest in projects that address sustainability, diversity. That those are those are great buzzwords. But could you explain to me and to the listener what you mean by that? Because I think how you interpret that's really the important thing. You know what I mean? Jeremy, let me get back to you in the future episode. I'm just. Hey, I'm only 25, okay, Jeremy. Let me just think about the bigger picture. What I want to do 20, 30 years from now. Why are you asking me very well? Because because I might change my mind tomorrow. You're absolutely allowed to change your mind tomorrow. But I think what you need to do is think about where you want to end up and what you want to end up doing. You know, I'm involved in a lot of associations. You know, yes, you are. On, you know, which by the way, hold hold on. I I would like to say something about that now that you've brought it up, mm-hmm. and that's something that I think every listener should take heed of and try to be involved. And I need to be involved in more of those. I'm only involved in ULI, but being involved in associations is really great, mm-hmm. and it gets you access to a lot of people who wouldn't take your call if mm-hmm. you called them up and said, you know, I want to talk about my career, but oh, I met you at. Mm-hmm. You know, why don't you tell everybody what you did with ULI? I think that's huge. Well, I'm on the management committee for Urban Land Institute, Nevada, ULI Nevada. I really like ULI's events because they think about the big picture, the future, the overall bigger scope, like a forward thinker of where the commercial real estate it's a different it's a different organization it's not just a bunch of developers sitting around talking about i built this big building look at how great i am right 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 they really you know they focus on that but they also focus on what are you doing with that they've got great events their Mm -hmm. national conference i've never been to it but i've got you can go on their website they've got you know lectures from donald bren Mm -hmm. jim baker the spares you know and the people who support the uli include you know, as a young person, you can get a mentor, which, you know, I think is important, especially as a young woman starting out in the business. But I'm sorry to have interrupted. I like UI because like just by looking at the people in the Nevada chapter, which is pretty much based in Las Vegas, every developer, every person involved in our local chapter is a community minded developer. That's true. I I am involved in so many different associations or events within our industry, and I noticed that there are different type of developers. Some developers they are more on the number crunching side. You know, they always talk about investment, money, finance, blah blah blah. And then the other group of developers who I really like are the community minded. They really think about the overall picture of where Southern Nevada is going and how can we make our industry and our city better, a Mm -hmm. bigger picture thinking. And they care about affordable housing, urban planning, sustainability, and really addressing diversity, inclusion, and bring young people into our industry, all of these forward-thinking ideas, those are the type of developers I like. And I would like to become that type of developer in the future. You know, I'm still young. I'm learning. I'm this is how you do now. it. You, you, you meet with people. You see what people have done. You figure out how they've done their careers and how they've gotten where they are. You know, the ULI is great because it's... Yeah. 
It's got people who they're very interested. They'll help you out. They'll talk to you. If you have a question, they'll talk to you. They know what they're doing. And some of these guys, the ULI, I've seen great, famous developers. And the fact that they're in the ULI means that they're they care about it. It's it's about a lot more. And they've got programs. I'm very active in Urban Plan, where which teaches people about how real estate development works. And I always tell the people when you do Urban Plan, whether they're public officials or kids, look, there's no right answer. The right answer is whatever answer you come up with that fits your thing. The beauty of it is that there is no right answer. It's not like the search for anything. The, the, there's room for creativity. So yeah, I think that's a, a laudable goal. And you, you, you're young, you have a lot of time. But what you have to do is think about what people have done before, who you want to not imitate, but model yourself after. Yeah. There's some very, you know, in the ULI, most of the older ones are men just because they've been around for so long. And the guys in this book were generally men, but you could see a lot in them. And you can see a lot. And one of the benefits of reading books like this is you can see what people have done in terms of design. We can talk about in this book, we can talk about the super talls against Zeckendorf. So let's take a second and talk about design. So basically, this book talks about how people built New York City since 2001. And if you think about what's happened in New York since you were a kid, Unfortunately, or fortunately, or probably more unfortunate, it's it's been a tale of really two cities, as the former mayor unfortunately put it. You got the super rich, and you've got everybody else. Unfortunately, we're not seeing much development for everybody else because it's so expensive. So what they do is they build high-end development. And the reason they do that is because the land, and this is where, if you're a developer, the math comes in. The, the land prices are just so high that you have to build for them because that's the only way you can make a profit. So you got two, your two models, right? You've got, let's take two examples. You take the super talls, which were, a lot of them were built by Extel. Bruce, what was his name? Bruce Barnett, uh, Gary hey. Barnett. Gary Barnett, not Bruce Eichner, is the guy who really pioneered the super tall. Now, what's a super tall? He spent, he, he became an expert over the years. He was a guy who married a diamond dealer's daughter and he worked in diamonds. And eventually he figured out that there's all this money sloshing around in diamonds. Where are we going to put it? Let's put it in New York City real estate. And so basically he's a broker. He's a developer who's raising other people's money, starting off with friends, relatives, rich people in the diamond business. There's a lot of diamonds in Europe. Got nine kids or something, lives in Queens in a very modest house, even though he's worth all this money now. What he did was he started with site acquisition. So he started putting piecing together sites. He got very good at zoning and air rights and land use and all that stuff. And he figured out he could build super tall buildings. And what's the beauty of a super tall? A super tall, if you can, you can have floors of these high-priced apartments that you could sell, sell for tens of millions to oligarchs, people from mainland, people who are trying to move money out of China, people who are trying to move money out of Russia, you know, all, you know whatever, whoever. He could sell you very expensive apartments. Now, what's his design? Very high, very tall, very narrow. How does that compare with the other guy? The other guy was, who they talk about in the book was the Zeckendorfs. Now, who are the Zeckendorfs? Uh, these are the grandsons of the Zeckendorf. 
And their father built Worldwide Plaza. There was a great book about that called Skyscraper. So these are the grandsons, you know, and they're not heirs. They get into this business because this is what they know. They, they have not inherited a fortune from their parents. Uh, both their fathers, unfortunately, went bankrupt at some point or belly up or whatever you want to call it. Before you continue, should we tell our audience that we already did a book club about Zeckendorf? Yes, Senior. we did. We, well, we did a book club about the original Zeckendorf. These right. are his grandchildren. Mm-hmm. So the original went broke. The son went into it on his own. He kind of went broke, not spectacularly, but his empire was liquidated. They just ran into trouble. Real estate development is a very, very risky business. And you have to be a special kind of gutsy person to do development. Ransom Zek, they have their eyes on this beautiful plot of land near Central Park. And they keep talking to the owner. I think it's like a Greek family who's represented by somebody. Takes them years. Eventually, they they just overbid for it. Now, why do they overbid for it? They know what they can build and they know what they can make. And they build a building. It's it's right by Trump Tower and Columbus Circle. So it's about two blocks north of Columbus Circle. And they really do a very interesting design. It's like lime, it's like limestone. It's got two towers facing two different directions connected. They were very clever about how they did the air rights. And they were also willing, I think it was a hotel, like an SRO or something. And they were basically extorted by these guys because these guys were rent controlled and they wouldn't leave. And they had to pay one tenant like $15 million. But they were willing to put everything on the line for that. And they were willing to go up against every, no, everybody would think you can't do that. You know, yeah, you're never going to get rid of the tenants. It's going to cost you too much time, too much money to carry and cost. You spend two or $300 million on the, there's no way. They figured out how to do it. And they did it. And they built a beautiful, classic building. I mean, these apartments cost tens of millions of dollars. But you got two different design approaches. You've got the Barnett approach, which is high and tall. And you've got their approach, which is classical, lower rise, looks different, blends into the neighborhood. But the amenities in both these apartments are beautiful. And unfortunately, the apartments tend to sit vacant for most of the year because they're not being sold to locals anymore. They're being sold to people who fly in for weekends, fly out, come four or five times a year for a weekend or something. And that was what New York became during the 2000s. Why, again, land prices were so... Yeah, so that's that's an interesting story. The book really talks about everybody who was participating in development in New York. So we talked... Yes. So before we get into the new kings of New York, can you talk about the difference between the previous generations of developers of New York City versus the current generation of developers in New York City? What are the well, differences and how did they transform from, from the previous generation question. to this one? It's a good question. So I would say the difference it's, it's, it's generally all rich men who have access to giant pools of capital. For generations, the big developers in New York were, you had families. And I think the last couple of gener- decades, you've seen the families not, and, and, and the insurance companies have really been replaced by, by guys who have moneyed partners and are building super tall or high-end luxury buildings. Why? Because that's where the demand is and that's where you can make money. 
It's very hard in New York to make money building workforce or middle class or even upper middle class housing. It's just too expensive. And that's because of land prices. They don't really get into that in the book. He's just talking about what happens. But we could talk about a bunch of these guys. So I think what changed was just land prices. And it's it's really interesting because if you look back decades, you started seeing a change during the 80s. And that's when guys like Trump were coming around. Um, He also doesn't really talk about the office owners. They're a separate pot of people. And I think you can actually distinguish between different different types of people. Like Tishman Speyer is generally an office landlord. Uh, They get into trouble when they move into workforce housing. And that's an interesting story that we'll talk about. But you had your hand up and I was just talking. I'm sorry. I was just, instead of the building style, I'm just more curious about whether it's um, the mindset or the visions of the developers of the two generations or yeah. or whether it's corporation, corporate type of developers nowadays, we see more than, you know, the entrepreneurship individual type of developers. So let's take that one at a time. You talked about mindset and you talked about corporate. So generally, you're not going to see corporations building in New York right now. I think they're a little too risk averse and it's very expensive. The only corporate, the corporations that I can recall have done big developments in New York and there weren't any in the book and nobody's going to write about a corporation because it's boring. You know, Mm -hmm. we'll talk talk about the great blob coming in. What they do talk about are corporations who back developers. And that's got to do with pools of capital and access to wealth and where the money's willing to go. The one corporation and two corporations that we know have done developments in New York, have been SL Green. And and what do these guys have in common? They're big REITs who specialize in this stuff. So SL Green used to be, it was originally owned by Steve Nell Green. They don't cover this in the book. It became a REIT. They did a lot of like B offices. Like he owned everything from like 34th Street to like 14th Street. He owned all the offices there. But he, the company really moved uptown. They went into luxury because they were making more money there. The market wants to see a certain return, and that's where they're making the return. The other one is Vornado, who's trying to do a big development now. But a corporation, you know, like you do have corporations doing big like hotel developments. But in New York, you have to have specific experience doing specific types of development. And I might be wrong about this, but the corporations have, at least in the book, were seen to partner with particular developers. So you know, let's talk about one developer just as a, and he's a, he like bridges the two generations. So he's the, like a buccaneer. His name's Harry Macklow. And you know, the old time developer, I mean, I would classify them as the Tishmans, the Rudens. These are guys who hang out, they're involved in the partnership for New York City. They're very active. Tishman Speyer, Jerry Speyer was one. The, his father-in-law Tishman was one. The Rudins, the Dursts, these are families that have been doing this for years. The families have seemed to have gone the way of gone away. And I think that's because they 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 manage risk in a very different way than a lot of these guys do. So if you're the Durst family, you've been doing this since the early 1900s. The, the Rudins have been doing this since the late 1800s. Yeah, one Rudin or, or one Durst said, I want to be able to walk from my apartment to all of my properties. And yet he knew exactly what they could build. And they were willing to take on a certain amount of risk. They did it themselves. Left Rack's another one. Fred Trump was another one. They tended to use a lot of that cash 
in their buildings, and they held for generations. And these guys have been around. When the city needs them, they're there for the city. The modern guys tend to be more buccaneers. Extel, like I said before, Extel's doing huge developments, but they're not using Gary Barnett's personal money. They're using money coming from investors. He's making money on a promote, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, I, I, very few people have access to 150, 100, 500, a billion dollars in cash to do a big development. It's just not possible anymore. So you need a moneyed partner. But it's a different business model, and they're more attuned to risk. And so let's take Macklo, for instance. Macklo was the last buccaneer. He started out, and we did do a book club on him, but he, st- yes. he started out, and, and this is a retelling of the story, because you know what? There only is, uh, can you pause the recording for a second? So, so Harry Macklo was like the last buccaneer. In the 80s, he owned a hotel, and he mm-hmm. wanted to tear it down to build an apartment, the, the office building. And the city said, okay, you can't tear that down because you need a permit. He just went out like right before the permit expired or something and had a bulldozer knock the building down. Now you'll be like, oh yeah, you know, this is great. You you had real guts to do that. There were active gas lines there and he could have blown half the city up and nothing really happened to him other than we got a fine. He had to pay like a $1,200 fine. Normal people don't do that. But I guess that's what makes a real estate developer. You know, he's got guts, right? He's a buccaneer. Society was very critical of him for what he did. And this was before I was born. But I have read that people were enraged, but nobody did anything about it. Acklow goes on to be a successful developer. And as, as we've talked about before, he ends up buying the GM building. And he's a very talented developer who put the, uh, I don't remember whose idea it was, they mentioned in the book, it may have been Tim Cook's idea, but he put that staircase into the Apple store. And you know, he really, you know, you talk about value add, he added value to a class A building. We did a book club on that. Yes, we did. Yeah. Uh, I recommend you listen to that listener. So the problem is, is that Maclo, at the same time this is going on, Sam Zell, who we've done a book club about, is selling his 30 something billion dollar portfolio of office buildings in every Basically, Equity Office is a giant REIT. It's got probably 100 office buildings. Every building, if you add it together, is probably worth X dollars more than the REIT. Blackstone and Vornado figure this out. Blackstone wins, and Blackstone has a 40-something billion dollar deal to do. The timeline, we have to mention, this was pre before 2008. This is 2007. So what Blackstone decides to do is they're like, hmm, I can reduce the cost of this deal by $8 billion if I sell, if we're seven billion, whatever the number was, multiple billions of dollars, if I sell these buildings to somebody, let's say Harry Mackle. And Harry Mackle, and there were people who did this in other cities too. Yes. Some of the parts, it's greater than... Yeah. Net asset, the net asset value was less, was more than the than the stock market value. And that's why Blackstone bought it. Blackstone didn't buy it to run an, an office suite. They bought it to, to, to segment it up and sell off because they were under they're valuing the enterprise as a whole. But every building is a unique asset. The problem is, is that there was a discount the market was factoring in because he owned a hundred of the damn things. He may not have been the best landlord. He he acquired them. I, I I don't know. You can't get into the market's head, but the market clearly felt that there was there there was a delta there, and Blackstone pounced. So here's what happened: 
Mackle puts a couple hundred million dollars down. He's having trouble getting financing. He goes to Fortress and he basically, I think it was Fortress, and he basically says, I need a loan. Fortress says, you have to guarantee everything. And he's like, fine. He puts up every asset he owns, his billion dollar art collection, the GM building, every other asset. Everybody's telling this guy no. But he says, what? I'm going to get a new loan. And then everything will be fine. I'll bring in some partners. Everything's going to be great. So he goes from being a buccaneer to being an institutional landlord in about a week. The problem is, is that the next week the market collapses and he can't get that loan. And Fortress is basically, his lender is basically a hard money lender who's charging him multiple teens of interest. And they say, look, what are you going to do about this? He, the only way he gets out of it after his wife and family really hold his feet to the fire, because he could end up on the street. He can't refinance. He's got multiple beautiful buildings, but the market is in free fall. And it was a scary time. So I remember this. He lost everything, including the GM building, which is sold to a big corporate colossus owned by Morton Zuckerman, who still owns the GM building. Boston. That's the name of the REIT. So Naclo down, but not out. You know, he's made money for people in the past. He's made money for himself. Then he starts doing 432 Park. He teams up with CIM Group. Hold on. We need to talk about how he lost everything and then ended up getting the financing to build 432 Park. He found, he found the partner, the CIM Group. And he went from being the man to being the front man. So I don't know what his deal was. Was he a fee developer? Was he getting a promote? Was he getting a piece of the pie? The bottom line is he went from the guy running his own show to working for effectively an institution. And the institution put, they raised money from probably the Middle East or wherever, but he lost a lot of money, but he rebounds. And people don't know that he's got money behind him. Everybody thinks, oh, he's the developer. And, and then he kind of went crazy, got divorced from the wife who you know, basically saved him because he was about to literally lose everything. And the wife, according to the Liars Ball book we read, basically said, it's enough. Sell the GM building you know, so we don't end up on the street. And he puts- Always post- listen to your wife, man. Always he listen did, to but your then, wife. But then he started having an affair with some woman who's 30 years younger than him. And he'd been married to this woman- Sounds like every story of of those headline developer, unfortunately. And, you know, he'd been married to this woman for, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years. They had multiple children together. And, you know, it's just very sad because, you know, she's the mother of his children and he ends up taunting her with a poster of himself with his new wife. The New York Post was not very happy with that. And I think they spoke for a lot of people in New York because that's... You know, I think there's a baseline decency for how you should treat people. The personal life, the story was in there, and that's part of what makes the book so good. So okay. why don't I start it? So Harry, you know, went bankrupt. His wife helped him, you know, advised him, and you know, he sold everything, lost the GM building, gets back in business. He gets divorced. Turned out he was having an affair. And, you know, not to be salacious, but there was a whole story. You should read the book. They talk about the posters of the new wife, you know, to yeah, haunt the I remember, I remember seeing that. Uh, you know, I don't mean to be salacious or anything, but it's a part of the book. And it was a huge deal in New York because his wife was a very respected member of the community. And people were, people felt that this was really unbecoming. 
I think that goes to what you were saying before about what people can get away with. It's something to think about. Anyway, while this is happening, New York City decides it wants to host the Olympics. How does it decide it wants to host the Olympics? There's a guy named Dan Doctoroff. Dan Doctoroff is an investment banker. Is is he the founder of Sidewalk Labs? We'll get there. Um, And what is the timeline? This was... This is kind of after, well, it's kind of while everything's happening. So, so he goes bust Macro in 2008 to nine. He comes back in the early 2000s. But let's take a minute and go back 10, 20 years. Dan Doctoroff is a wealthy investment banker. I think he's working for the Bass Brothers, who are two of the richest. He's working for a company linked to the Bass Brothers, who are linked to Rainwater. Now, this is like the white shoe finance types. And he goes to the World Cup final in, I think it was, or he goes to the World Cup, maybe not the final. I think the final was in the Rose Bowl. But he goes to a World Cup game in Giants Stadium. And he's, the fans are there. I, I don't know if anybody's ever seen a soccer game. Have you ever seen a soccer game? Yeah, a, a, a Europe, an international or European soccer game. The fans are singing. You can hear them screaming yeah. their chants. They're waving their flags. They've got songs. And he's struck by this. And he's inspired. And he decides, we need to host the Olympics here. And he's got the money and the backing to really develop it. And it, But it's a private effort, as Olympics generally are. Bloomberg gets elected mayor in 2001. And Dr. Ruff becomes head of economic development. And... One of the things he keeps doing is the Olympics deal. The Olympics deal goes on for about, and I remember this, this was a huge deal because they were going to build a West Side Stadium. That was going to be the, the base they were going to build. What they were going to do was really, I, I guess, maybe ahead of its time. The problem with the Olympics is you, it, it generally goes to countries that spend 50 to 100 or more billion. I think Russia spent like 200 billion on the Soki Olympics. And they, they build stuff that nobody uses. Any. So if you go to Rio de Janeiro or Soki, nobody's using this, this stuff. And I, I think part of the problem is the Olympics really price themselves out. So countries that like in America, you know, the Americans are not going to tolerate spending $40 billion on stuff that nobody's ever going to use. And what they were trying to do was they were trying to use the Olympics as a catalyst for economic development. So we'll build an Olympic village, fine, we'll build apartments, and then we'll turn it into affordable housing units. Or we'll build a park, we'll build a a new rec center or whatever, and we'll turn it into a park. Really reusable stuff. And I think that's where the Olympics have gone, just because Western voters and taxpayers like you uh, are not going to be very happy about spending billions of dollars for a week and not getting anything out of it. Like you, Jeremy, I live in Las Vegas. Yeah, but you know, you built a stadium out there and the stadium is not just used one day a year. They're using it for other stuff too. That's the whole point of it. It's, it's, they want, it's, it's, it, you want to build stuff that you can use. Yeah, and yeah I the, understand. The, yeah, the, 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 the Olympics ends up dying. Now, why does it die? It dies in like 2006 or 2007. So basically, and this is going to get overly technical, and I remember this. They wanted to build on the West Side Yards, right, which is now Hudson Yards. So the deal is that was owned by the MTA. And in order to get approved, it would have to go before a panel that was controlled by the Senate majority leader of the House of 
of Senate Majority Leader and the Assembly Speaker. And the Assembly Speaker at the time was Shelley Silver, who did not feel that the Bloomberg administration should be doing this because it would detract, it would attract attention away from and money away from what he felt should be the priority, which was rebuilding ground zero, which has probably been the best funded economic development mm-hmm. effort in history. Fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so two things are happening. The Dr. Off is devastated. But while he's been doing this, he's also been doing rezonings. So he's the de- deputy mayor for economic development. He was really involved in rezoning New York, which was one of the things that he was upzoning. So New York had a zoning code set in late 1965, and a lot of the, the neighborhoods in the Bronx and Brooklyn were low-rise neighborhoods. So what Dr. Ruff did was he said, look, we'll let you build up. And they tried to get some affordability components in there, but it really remade New York. And that led to the part, that was part of the thing that led to the development boom during the Bloomberg years. Upzoning, yes. That's a really good point that you just point out. I'm recently, what I'm seeing in Las Vegas is I feel like our city is going to the phase where we need to build up now. Instead well, of when out. you run out of land, mm-hmm. you've got one where you look. And I think we're right, experiencing this as a country now. There's not, you've got two options. You can sprawl or you can go up. And part of the problem is young people need a place to live. And they want to live at least until they're married with kids and families. They want to live in apartments and you really couldn't find apartments. And New York City, Brownstone, Brooklyn, the Bronx, Queens, what what Dr. Ruff was very involved in doing was rezoning and allowing you to build more. Now that creates problems. It creates problems of traffic, crowding, more people, strain on services, but it generates more tax revenue, which helps pay for that. Dr. Roth leaves the Bloomberg administration about 2010, and he goes to run Bloomberg's private company. Unfortunately for him, Bloomberg leaves office and decides, I'm bored. I think I'm going to run my company. So Dr. Roth, look, he sees the writing on the wall. And he says, but Mike, I'm going to go run Sidewalk Labs. And he ran Sidewalk Labs up until about a year ago, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. He's since been diagnosed with ALS. So he's alive. Um, I think he's trying to raise money for research. But he, uh, he's, got a, he's got a very tough thing ahead for himself, unfortunately. And uh, I read his book. It was a fascinating book. It goes into detail about the rezonings. It's it's interesting. And, and it's something that people should read, especially if you're in a city like Vegas or a county like Clark County, where they're probably going, like if you look at Summerlin or the big Howard Hughes developments, they're mm-hmm. still building single family houses, but they're probably building apartment buildings because that's where people want to live or can't afford mm-hmm. to live or are more environmentally friendly. It's probably more environmentally friendly to have 70 people living where 20, where 10 houses would be with, with very little grass because grass is a water band. So that's Dan Doctorow. Now, what we're, we're about Hudson Yards. So the yards are the MTA's railroad yards. Richard Ravage built them in the 70s. What about Mo- Moses? Moses wasn't involved in these. These okay. were MTA railroad yards. That, and, and in the 70s, Dick Ravick, who was the, uh, look, Ravitch was is probably one of the most prominent civic boosters New York has ever seen. He is and remains a legend. He's in his late 80s now. He made sure that when they redid the yards, there was room for the pillars that support the current Hudson Yards. So he knew this was coming. And I, if, 
you know, just as a non-book aside, he was in the newspaper about two weeks ago and he basically said, look, I'm worried about the subway. I'm paying for my grandson to take an Uber. When I read that, I said to myself, this is concerning because if Ravitch is telling his kid, his son's son to, to take an Uber, that says something about where the city is headed. And that was very concerning because Ravage is the city's premier booster for mass transit and, and rail. Always was, always will be. But if the if safety has become that much of an issue, I think we have a problem that needs to be addressed. I hope we address it. So anyway, this, 30 years later, the city's finally figured out, okay, it's time to develop Hudson Yards. The West Side Stadium is not going to work. They put it out to bid. The timeline, when what, when did this happen? 2010? This is 2006, 2007, 2008. Okay. The winner is Tishman Speyer. Tishman Speyer has just been involved. Right. What about Sky, Skytown, Sky? Sky, yes. They were involved in both giant projects at the same time. They are involved in Stytown. And we could talk about Stytown. Stytown's in the book. Wait, we did a book club about that already. So basically, just, just for the people who haven't had the time to listen to us talk about Stytown, Stytown's a huge development with city subsidies built, owned by MetLife. MetLife decides to sell it. They sell it, they put it up to bid, and it's bought by Tishman Speyer for five, five or four, four something billion. They think they can deregulate it, make it luxury. They can't. The project blows up. The bank takes over. It was 80 acres post-World War II affordable housing project in Manhattan. It was, yeah, it was, a, it was not, I don't know if you'd call it, it's not, it wasn't what we would call today affordable. It was middle-class workforce oh, and that was, it. It was yeah. affordable back then. It's mm-hmm. the same kind of thing. It was rent stabilized. And the whole point of the deal was we can get these units out of stabilization and they couldn't. But it was interesting. If you read the book about it, the guy who actually knows affordable housing and, and rent-stabilized housing, who's left rack, basically says, I can't bid this kind of money on this because I can't make any money. And the guy who's running it, Rose, says, you're not going to, they do it anyway. They get blown up. It, you know, they lose a big case to the Court of Appeals. And Tishman Speyer, that deal goes sideways. At the same time, Tishman Speyer, is, and I might be conflating the times, it happened at around the same time. Tishman is about to take on a huge project. Remember, Tishman Spare is not putting Tishman Spare's money because they're putting investors' money. They um, lost investors' money. Yes. So they have transitioned from a Tishman Spare family business to an institutional business at that time. I believe so. I don't know yeah. when they made that transition, but they were originally a family with Tishman. And it was a, they had a publicly traded subsidy. And then, and then when the company, the Tishman family broke up in the 70s and Jerry Speyer went into business with his father-in-law, one of the Tishmans, and Jerry's transitioning to Rob. And at this point, Rob basically says, I don't think we can do both. And he backs out. Now, this is, this is great news for Related. Related is run by Steve Ross. Ross was an affordable housing builder, like an actual affordable housing builder, Section 8 and all that stuff. That's Section Litech. 8. Oh, Litech, 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 So he's the biggest, to this day, Related Companies is the biggest owner of affordable housing in America. In the late 80s, okay, so Robert Moses built on Columbus Circle this thing. It was called the Coliseum. It is 
it was basically this ugly, brutalist slap. And it was before the Javits Center it was New York City's convention center. It was such a dump that they built the Javits Center to replace it in the 80s. And it became during the 80s a big deal because you know what was going to replace it. And I don't remember if the book goes into this, but I'll tell you. So basically, they're going to redevelop it and they're fighting. TA owns it. They're fighting with this one. They're fighting with that one. The guy who's got the original bid is Morton Zuckerman. And Morton Zuckerman just, just isn't able to make the deal work. They keep, they keep, the, 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 the neighbors keep complaining. They say it's going to make too much It's going to ruin the park. There's going to be too much. Not enough. It's going to be too much of a shadow. Ironically, that's exactly the place that's filled with super tall skyscrapers that create shadows. And so, but whatever. So Mort backs out, the bid goes out again, Related wins it. And what they do is they do something very, very clever. They do a vertical mall. So they've got, it's really the first American building where you have retail, commercial, hotel, and apartments. So in the Time Warner Center, you have, what do you have? You have Jazz at Lincoln Center, apartments that cost umpteen hundreds of millions of dollars. You've got the office part that's owned by Time Warner, and you've got a hotel, the Mandarin Oriental. So Ross puts this together. He, at the time, is not really a prominent developer. He's an affordable housing developer, but no one knows who he is. So he goes, he gets Time Warner to partner with him. He goes, he meets with them. They're like, we don't want to be in business. By the time he's done presenting, he's got Time Warner. He's got a, and they're willing to give him a letter of credit. They, they say they'll buy the office space. Great. He needs a hotel. He gets a hotel. He gets Mandarin Oriental. He gets, he does this, this vertical mall. Nobody's ever done a vertical mall before, but he's got the guts. And then Giuliani comes in and says, you know what? I want, I won't approve the zoning for this unless I get something. Well, what do I want? I want there to be the Lincoln Center Jazz. Every other developer puts it in the basement. Ross says, you know, what? I'm going to put it in a beautiful central location which is a big risk. He hits a grand slam. Knocks it out of the park. Now he decides he's going to do Hudson Yards. And he puts in for Hudson Yards. It's a huge development project. He's got a moneyed partner, Oxford, I think. And he does the same thing. So you've got this cultural institution. You've got this thing. They call it the vessel. I'm not sure what it is. It's like a public sculpture that people like to jump off of. He's got retail, he's got commercial, and he's got millions of dollars worth of luxury apartments for oligarchs and Saudi princes. The commercial, he's not really making money on. He apparently sold the commercial at cost to a lot of these places, and he's, but he's making the money on the housing. So the housing, it's so expensive, that's where the profit margin is. And that's the story of Hudson Yards. Yes, you had a question. For projects like that, don't you feel like, I just feel like sometimes these ultra expensive projects like the Hudson Yard is the most expensive private real estate development in American yes. history. The one that held this title previously was the city center project in Las Vegas. Um, and the Time the Warner Center was up there. So yeah. these are these are billions and billions of dollars that are being dumped into these developments. 
And sometimes I just, just by looking at the city center today or the Hudson York project, I just feel like they are very similar in terms of design style. It's a very corporate type of product. Well, it's, it's curtain wall, it's skyscrapers. I think it's driven by the fact that this is what people know and this is what they feel comfortable with and what the bank is willing to lend them on, to them on. And it's probably cheaper to put up a glass building than a mason building. It's probably cheaper to put up a glass building than a mason building. So yeah, it's you're right. And by the way, you're not the only one. Architecture critics, there have been a lot. There's been a lot of criticism of the Time Warner Center and of Hudson Yards by people who say the, that there were that they've been very bad for New York because what it's done is it's basically along with the super talls, they've basically allowed New York to become an ATM for billion billionaires many of whom are not good people who just park money in New York basically as like a vault. And, you know, the apartment sits there. Nobody uses it. So Manhattan becomes less affordable. They knock down a building of more affordable housing or rentals. They put up a super tall or a big skyscraper. What does that do for me or you? I don't think you're wrong at all. I think a lot of people share that. And it gets into that whole affordability debate, which is probably a, a different podcast entirely because it's such a it's it's such a big issue. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Okay, please continue. Thank you, Jeremy. So yeah, that's Hudson Yards. So Okay, I think we've got one more interesting guy to go, and then we're done with this book for now. The next developer who they talk about is Swig. Swig comes from a very wealthy family out east, west, west. I think they're from LA or Seattle. I forgot which. Or San Francisco. He moves to New York and ends up working for Harry Mackerel. And he starts doing unique developments downtown. Like he's selling apartment. He's selling, he's like doing, he's buying decrepit buildings, refurbishing them and offices are putting in there. And during the boom, he goes into a couple buildings and he's trying to do big real estate development. And he just gets in over his head. And at that point, the investors who've made, who've invested with him start to realize maybe this guy just isn't as good as we thought. He told us he worked for Mackle. He's married to Mackle's daughter. He's told us he was running that company. He wasn't. He actually gets Mackle to, to loan him money and it gets into this whole soap opera. And he ends up, taking out a big, he ends up going into default. He ends up going to his banker and saying, I, if you loan me X money and buy the note, we'll be able to buy this building out. And we'll make money. And they're like, why would we do business with you? And he says, well, you can make money. I'm not going to make anything, but I'll get a piece of what you're making. So if you make a hundred million, I'll get 10 or five or whatever. And he goes from not being able to pay his own credit card bill his son's buying him lunch and he goes in with this banker and he comes out alive. He failed and he lost a fortune and he went from being a billionaire to not a billionaire. But he did not go from being a billionaire to being bankrupt. He went from being a billionaire to only a decent millionaire. So he still got more money than any of us. But his project got done and he's in a position to go ahead and get backing from investors for another deal. And why will investors back him? 
because they've made money on him. And even and another one's Bruce Eichner. Bruce Eichner's not in the book, but he's a lot. People have lost money with, you know, this guy's gone broke four or five times. He's the guy who built the Cosmopolitan in Las Vegas. And, and he's gone broke three, four times. It was the biggest bankruptcy project in Las Vegas history. It wasn't his first. He lost his shirt on the Bertelsmann building. But he knows what he's doing. And if you think about it, how many guys in America, or people in America, know how to build big skyscrapers and are good at it? So does that mean if you have an expertise and you're the best in that niche, even if you fail, people will still give you a second chance? I think they're more likely to give you a second chance if you have a track record of doing it successfully. And they're probably more likely to give you a second chance than to give somebody who's never done it a chance because it's so complicated. What is are that? Some is of that right or is that wrong? I think that's a different debate. I'm just saying that this is what people tend to do. Yeah. Because banks are very risk averse. So even if a guy felt three or four projects, and those are big bankruptcy projects, he's still able to bounce back and people still trust him and lend him money. I think they trust him less and they try to control him more. But, you know, the first one's probably hard. The second one is probably easy. This was not, the the Cosmopolitan was 15 years after Eichner's last bankruptcy. So clearly he had time, you know, probably... They probably kept him on a very short leash for a few years. Then they gave him more slack and then they got burned again. Then he won't get more. It's the same story over and over. Why does he get away with it? Because he's a talented developer who builds good buildings. Just so happens that half the time they go bust and people lose money. You're not going to like that answer. I'm just telling you what I think the answer is. I do kind of agree that if Cosmopolitan opened in 2016 instead of 2010, I think it will be a non-bankrupt project. Well, I think that's one of the ways that he gets away with it too, because he's able to say with some justification, you know, I wouldn't have lost money if I only lost money here because of the fact that it was the recession. It's not my fault I lost money. I had a great project. I lost money because of the of the timing. And I, th- I think people are willing to buy that because if you think about it, there aren't that many people who are able to do what these guys do, unfortunately. So here's the question for you and me, Jeremy. And the people who are listening to this podcast, how can we become the expert in our own niche? I think what you have to do is find your niche and become the best at it. Whatever you do, if you're the best, you'll always have work. And people will always be willing to take a chance on you because, you know, what? it's easier to take a chance on somebody who's done it before than on somebody who's never done it. That's why it's so hard to get started. They're not willing to take a chance on somebody who's never done it before. Because if you think about how many points of failure are there in development, if you failed, you're only, well, Eichner is going to say, well, I failed because the economy collapsed. Macklow is going to say, well, I failed because I took a risk and, and you know, I, the, the interest rate market froze up. Uh, not the, the, the lending market froze up. It's not my fault. If, the, if they hired you or me to build that building, we could have failed just by failing to manage construction costs. 
you know, I can like, I finished the building. It's not my fault. Oh, that happened. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's easier once you're there. It's a closed world because it's easier for the banks. The banks are like, well, you know, you know what you're doing. I'm less likely to lose money on you than I am with Jeremy and Ninja because they have no idea what they're doing. They've never built an 80 story high rise before. They've never run a hotel before. <laughs> they, the most they've done is 10 stories. The most they've done is 20 stories. The most they've done is built 50 houses in the desert. And they, they may be billionaires from building single family houses, but what do you know about construction of a high rise and management of a high rise hotel? Or if you're Steve Ross, you know, once he's building Hudson Yards, it's a lot easier. It's very difficult for him to get off the ground and do the Time Warner Center because nobody's ever done it before. And he had trouble getting banks to back that one and the city to back that one. But once you do it, it's easy to do because he's, he's got the blueprint. All you have to do, this is real estate development. It's been done. Once it's been done once, it's just a derivative. Like Summerlin has been done a dozen mm-hmm. times by ULI members out in California. If you look at Orange County, San Diego County, Howard Hughes, I don't think they were involved in those, but there are, there are dozens of planned communities. All of them are great. Once you've done one, you could do it anywhere. There are planned communities in Florida. Once it's been done before, it's a lot easier to do again, but it's hard to do your first because there, there are so many points where you can screw something up. So that's basically what happened in the book. It's basically, it's a collection of stories. It's a narrative. It's basically a book about, about the developers and how New York changed. And how did New York change? It became a lot richer, a lot more unequal, and a lot more built up. And this is the story of how that happened. I'd recommend you read it just because if, you, if you're from New York or you're not from New York, and you want to get a sense of how we got here, it's interesting, but the stories are also really, really interesting. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you the stories because I think that ruins the book, but I'd recommend you read it. It's entertaining. The guys who are in the book and who are profiled are big personalities and are always entertaining. So yeah, I recommend it. Thank you. It sounds like the other book we did about Las Vegas, the, the transformation, the developers who built the Las Vegas Strip, Big personalities, entertaining, and fascinating stories of but how that, they... And, and that's how you're going to get, you know, the big personalities, the guys who come up with these ideas. And yes. that's who it's fun to write about. It's yes. not fun to write about a quiet guy who sits in an office, has does great deals, and makes a lot of money for people. A guy like Harry Macko, he's entertaining to write about because he's such a big personality. So what are the lessons that you learned from the book that this you is, can share with us? This audience? is a different kind of book, I think. I don't think it was written like the others, where, which are, it, it's more of a broad overview. So it's an overview yeah. of, of an era and of a time. And I think it, it's a book that we should all read because you can see how these developers didn't manage risk or did manage risk. And just the stories of how they did it. It's fascinating how this how these guys operate. And I think we can learn a lot just by watching about risk management, about vision. And you can also compare and contrast them. You know, there were so many big personalities. We've never done a book where you had so many personalities like coexisting at the same time. Like we did. I did the winner takes all of Las Vegas. Kirk but that was two, that was that was that was two or three people. This has five or six different guys. Just because of the population of Las Vegas and a 
even fewer people know how to build a casino hotel versus skyscrapers in Manhattan. Well, I think I think the point is is that this book was about the broader New York economy, which is just gigantic, and at the same time, you've got all this stuff going on. You know, Las right. Vegas, especially this, if you're gambling in Las Vegas, there's always been five or six guys doing it, five or six companies doing it. Whether it's it's Harris or or Caesars, whatever they call themselves, Win. Adelson and Kerkorian. But that was basically the, those were always the big guys in town because they that's the guy. This is this is just so broad and so all-encompassing. It's really a snapshot of an age. And it's a sh- and it shows how these careers have progressed. So it's different than you know what like the books we did about Liars Ball, which was about one building. This was mm-hmm. about a city in an era. It's a narrative book. Right. about the real estate industry in New York during like a 20-year period. And you get to see a lot of different personalities and, and just, just get a sense of the, the wild and crazy world that's New York uh, re- mm-hmm. real estate, especially New York residential development. Here's my question. Do you think we will continue seeing these kind of big personalities, individuals, entrepreneurs, as our industries getting more institutionalized and more corporate mindset. Well, 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 let me throw this at you. Do you think the institutions are going to be as willing to lay everything on the line as these big personalities? I think there's always going to be a role for the big personality because they can think big and they can put their money behind it. They can get people to put their money behind it. A REIT, a big corporate developer is going to be a lot more risk averse. And the question is, is how do you risk manage it? The question is, how can we get more entrepreneurial type of developers in our industry? Because the barrier of entry is really high. And I'm just thinking about, you know, here in Las Vegas, let's just talk about Casino Hotel as an example. I use this as an example because it's such a niche asset. Mm-hmm. And a very, very, very few of them, you know, the OGs who were involved in those hotels on the strip in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. But as the names that you mentioned in this episode, a lot of them are not around anymore. And some of them, they're in their 80s. And how do we get the next generation of people to be involved in our industry? 20 years, like 10 years from now, not even 20 years from now, we will not be able to call up any of the OGs. But there will be people who come after them, I think. And you'll what you'll see is you'll see people rising through the ranks now who will take their place because there's always going to be a need for somebody like that. Okay. Yeah. Our industry and the world are more fun with big personalities. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Any last comment, last thing that you would like to talk about? No, it's a pleasure. We We need to do this again. It's always fun to do this. Keep up the good work with ULI. That's amazing. Thank you. What should the next book be? I don't know. We'll think about it. I'll come up with some, maybe Dan Doktorov's book. Well, you know what? Since this book is about New York City, now we have to do a book about Las Vegas to balance out. I'll think of one. I'll find one. We mentioned the gambler 
Uh, yeah, so- we could do the gamble. We could do the gamble. Let me find the gambler and we could do the gambler next time. Either the gambler or the book about Caesar's bankruptcy. That's a complicated book. Let me think about it. Let's talk this week and we'll do the gambler or something. Why, why not the other book? I want to talk about how, you know, these uh, we hedge do that. funds yeah, we do that. Yeah, yeah. almost killed the entire city in 2008. Yeah, we could do that one. That one's a very complicated book. Uh, it's it's yeah we'll do we'll do that one. I think we should do that one because I have already done books about these big personalities of Las Vegas. People can listen to the other episode, but we need to talk about how these corporations、mm-hmm. ruined the not just the strip but basically the entire city because our economy depends on hospitality and tourism and gaming industry. And there's always the next recession. We just don't know when, but you know it's the market cycle. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I think just to give you a heads up, on, a sneak preview on that book, I think nobody had ever predicted the recession that we had in two thousand eight. They never thought that was coming, and when it came, it was absolutely devastating. But what have we learned? There's always going to be another recession. You know, a、yeah. recession we had one two years ago.、Uh, we're probably heading into one now. The question is how bad. The first thing that goes is gaming and travel because it's it's,、exactly. it's the definition of useless or not useless, but like extra spending that is not. I need clothes. I need food. I need to put gas in my car at six dollars, five dollars a gallon, or six fifty if you're in California. I don't need to go to a hotel. I can go to the park, and I think we're seeing society maybe shift a little bit. But we're seeing travel come back too. So、it's、all right,、be- let's. Interesting、Let's, time. Okay, send me,、right. please send me the book name so I can find out, and I'm going to read it, and I'm going to add a lot of my personal comments on that. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for doing yeah, this with I, me again. No, it's a pleasure. Hold on, I'll send you that name. Bye. Bye.